0: Andrew Whitaker's debut novel, The Altruists, was a New York Times editor's choice, a Paris Review staff pick, an Amazon editor's pick, and the People Book of the Week. It was published in 18 countries. His writing has also appeared in the New York Times, Esquire, Le Monde, Book Forum, and elsewhere. A graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop, Andrew lives in Brooklyn, New York. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your novel, Hope.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: I was just saying, I'm I'm like obsessed with your book and your voice, and I I think it's so funny. And I posted this on Instagram, but I swear to God, I thought this girl was me on the cover, and I yeah. had to like do a deep dive. But ultimately, I think she has longer legs than me. But anyway, this could have been me, is the point. I had a sweater just like this, and this was like my Bat Mitzvah years looks just like this. So I immediately identified with with the book. <laughs>
1: well,
2: what's so crazy about that is like, everybody seems to see themselves in this picture. Like I, I was born the year this picture was taken and I still look at it sometimes and I'm like, is that my bar mitzvah? Is that, is that me? (laughs) And I actually had a friend over the other day, not Jewish. He's like the waspiest guy I know. He's from Princeton, New Jersey. And he was like, that looks like my cotillion. uh, (laughs) I I think there's something about that image that for Jews, it's Barbat mitzvah, it gets you immediately, but there's something everyone can sort of see that universal adolescent longing and the humor and pathos of that time in that image, I think.
0: Totally. I mean, no, I don't think I'm the blonde girl.
2: Yeah, <laughs> Just right, to right, right. Yeah, okay, exactly, I'm
0: exactly. like the, you know, lurking brunette in the background, but yeah, <laughs> yeah right, uh, right. it's a great image. It's so great. Anyway, but that's besides the point of how great <laughs> the book is. Uh, so why don't you talk about what the book is about? Tell listeners what the book is about.
2: Sure. So, It comes out of this feeling that basically in every neighborhood, especially in the suburbs, you get the sense that there's this like one perfect family that kind of, at least on the surface, seems to have everything figured out. And in Brookline, Massachusetts, in 2013, that family is the Greenspan family, who are the central characters in this book. But when the father of the family, Scott, is caught committing fraud at work he just like sets off this chain reaction of scandals and you start to see the cracks that have sort of been underneath this family all along. And the book basically follows this this family of four over the course of a really uh, eventful and turbulent year as they basically fall apart and try to put themselves back together again, whether that means opening their marriage or going to fight in the Syrian civil war or, you know, whatever other normal (laughs) family stuff uh, the kind of perfect family does. So... Yeah, it's about a not so perfect family falling apart and putting themselves back. Yeah.
0: Oh my gosh, that's a good, very good description. I have a great Aunt Marjorie who was from Brooklyn. And, you know, again, with the, you know, identification and the passive aggressiveness of her. And this could be a woman in my own family. And I'm sure people are saying this to you also about the relatability of this family and maybe not the fraud and maybe not some (laughs) of the, you know, the internet cafe stuff. (laughs) It's like, that was so funny. Oh my gosh, when he went to Berlin. Oh my God. But, you know, just, the way that people interact with their parents. And I love the fact that Scott has this room, this like mental, you know, self-protective emotional room that he can go into and close himself off and just like not hear the chaos until like one day it doesn't even work. Um, yeah. uh, tell me about that. And it, like, is that a trick that you use? And, you know, tell, tell me, should I be adopting the mental room trick?
2: <laughs> Yeah, I've got to find a way to say this that no uh, no living family members will take offense to. <laughs> but um, no, I mean I think we all have those people in our family or friends or just our life, lives in general where we love them, we're close to them, we couldn't imagine life without them. But they they drive us crazy, and they you know I think I'm come from an extremely close knit family. But the flip side of being close knit is that it can be sort of limiting and constraining, and there are times when you think. Well, what if I wanted to find myself outside of how my family sees me? But you have these people who are like, no, 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 this is who you are. We know you better than you, you know? And so for some people in your family or elsewhere in your life, you might, yeah, do as the father in the book does and basically sort of, yeah, retreat into yourself. And you're sort of thinking, all right, this person's talking and I'm kind of passively listening. But in order to like protect my own emotional state and mental health, I kind of have to tune some of this out and then one day, yeah, one day a piece of information sort of penetrates that mental room, namely that his this character's mother has been has been conned out of her life savings with this teenage boyfriend in Berlin. And suddenly he's this room that he's imagined for himself, complete with you know interior decor and everything, <laughs> just crashing down. And suddenly he's like, I have to face this person, my mother that I've been tuning out for the last hour and kind of also my whole life. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Oh my gosh. Well, the humor in your book, it's like so understated, but so funny. And I like, I just think it's hilarious. And can I just read a couple of these little things? (laughs) I don't know if anybody's going to find this funny the way I'm reading it. It, Maybe it's in the bigger context of the whole scene, but there's a Scott, they're all telling a story here. So at a dinner party or cocktail party, Mm -hmm. a caterer appeared with a tray of water crackers topped with avocado and crab meat. Oh, Scott said, watching with longing as the caterer passed the ethicist, sure the next person. So Don and I were on a flight to Tokyo last month and who else is on board but these Hasidic Jews, black hats, curly sideburns, the whole deal. What they want in Tokyo is a mystery to me. Do they have Jews in Tokyo? No idea. Anyway, like, (laughs) like it's just so funny. And then it keeps going on about canceling the flight and like why they would do that. And, and this whole, my son, the doctor is drowning. How she said, Oh, this was so funny with the, when they, the friend takes him into another room and like <laughs> drops his pants and is like tr- to the doctor, like, do I have herpes or whatever? So he finds out he does have herpes. And he says, you know, I won't when he asks him how he gets it. He says, you know, I won't trouble you with the sort details. Let's just say that not all of our marriages are quite as sound as yours. A skateboard was mounted on the wall behind Marty, a cartoon alien painted on its underside. Herpes, Marty said, buckling his belt. My God. Hey, by the way, how's your mom? <laughs> and then he says, I won't ask how you made that mental leap. Just Polite. <laughs> I mean, so the timing, it's almost like not Seinfeld, but there's something just about the quips and the timing. Oh, and then I was totally interested. In fact, I already quoted this yesterday to somebody who was like, should I settle and get married? And I'm like, no, it doesn't. No, don't do that. How there's this study. And I don't know if this is based in reality of what makes successful the people who stay married for 60
2: years or more. And it's about low
0: expectations. (laughs) Tell me, tell me about that.
2: Yeah. Well, that specifically came from the low the expectations I th- I think I made up uh, and is just kind of, yeah, like a punchline that I I suppose I hope isn't true, but like might, might be. But my friend uh, from college, Leah, got a job or rather was doing her um, PhD at Yeshiva University in clinical psychology. And it was this really funny situation. She's half Jewish, but she's at, you know, Yeshiva with a lot of Orthodox Jews. And she was like, my job right now is to sit with elderly, mostly Jewish couples and ask them about their marriages. And that's like all I do all day. And she gave me all these great stories. And it's one of those funny things about writing where she probably told me this six years ago. And then you're just sitting down one day and you're like, I need a job for this character. And what would sort of fit the relationship themes in the book? And there's Leah's, you know, incredible job talking to these old couples, almost like in that Harry Met Sally kind of way. But I love, I'm, I'm so glad you pointed out the humor only because A, sometimes when I talk about the book, I get a little lost in the, like the politics and these like heady themes. And I'm like, but it's a comedy, it's a comedy. And I, jokes are so important to me. Humor is so important to me. I, much to my embarrassment now did uh, actually high school and college improv, uh, which is where I met my wife and something about that Jewish tradition of humor. And just, I just think there's so much truth in jokes and it's a way of saying something that, would probably be a little dark if it wasn't funny, but it kind of gets it a truth in a way that you let your guard down, you laugh and suddenly the effect of what the joke is saying hits you. So I'd say in addition also, yeah, to all the books I read growing up, I mean, stand-up comedy, the movies of Mel Brooks and, and people like, I mean, that's as, as important to me as any literary influence to be sure.
0: Totally. There's almost like an arrested development, like meets Curb Enthusiasm. There's mm-hmm. just like something... I don't know. I'm just, I think I'm just quoting anything I can, funny, I can think of. I don't no, know. But but I, are, I just nailed that. I
2: mean, those are the big ones. Yeah, absolutely. Those are the, I don't know. I, I love, yeah.
0: love how you do that. So I know this is your second novel and <laughs> I'm wondering, I haven't read your first novel, but now I have to go back. Uh, tell me if does that, is that a similar sort of tone and voice? And I know it had so much acclaim. Tell me about that novel and also, you know, just how you got into writing to begin with.
2: Well, yeah, maybe I'll just go chronologically, I guess. I was really into writing as a kid. I was a big reader. And in a kind of almost embarrassing way, I feel like I wanted to be a novelist. Basically, as long as I can remember, you know, my parents dug up some old, you know, one of those things you do in school, like, what do I want to be when I grow up? And I had said writer at some like, you know, I'm in like fourth grade or something. But I loved Poetry. First.
0: Um, I, I said the same thing in fourth yeah. grade, by the way. So don't oh, yeah. be embarrassed. I feel <laughs> like this, there's a long hit, like a lot of people on this pod who come on the podcast are like, well, actually that's what I wanted to do forever. But like, what, how did I get there? So anyway, don't.
2: No, well, totally. But it's like, I'm like, it would be so much more romantic if I had some insane, you know, just some crazy path to getting here. But I was like, I love books. I want to write books. And, and I don't really think I'm capable of I don't have other skill sets. I can't do math, so I better figure this out. <laughs> but I was really into poetry at first, which I think is how a lot of people get into writing. You know, before you're old enough to like construct a narrative, you write poems. And I went to Wash U in St. Louis, majored in English, but I had this incredible experience there with this this poet named Mary Jo Bang, where she would offer this special class that I had to petition for, where basically you just met one hour a week, one on one and you handed in a new poem and that was that was the class and she took your poem and she took out her red pen and she scribbled out a bunch of stuff and she handed it back to you and always she had found this incredible poem underneath my poem like she hadn't added anything mm-hmm. but just in crossing out the words that weren't working she would have found this poem and i realized two things in that class like one that like so much of writing is cutting through all the fog to like, there's something you really want to say is kind of buried under. And also that I probably wasn't cut out for poetry. And so I started <laughs> to, uh, fiction writing and yeah, I wrote my, I w- went to work in book publishing after graduating college for no reason other than I was like, I have to be near books and I I can't do anything else. So I wrote what did my first you, book wait, there. What did,
0: you, what did you do in book publishing? Like which department? I was,
2: I was an editorial assistant. I was, you know, the cl- classic story of wanting desperately to be a writer and spending all day like publishing other people's books and feeling all that kind of you know torment and angst and like sneaking hours in the morning getting there early to write before my boss came in and I wrote the book there I mean I wrote the book largely <laughs> at work in those little hours when when there's nothing going on basically to prove to myself as much as anyone that I could I could do this in addition to filing the paperwork and all the other stuff I was doing and then I went to grad school at Iowa where I met Sanjana Sethian, who you interviewed a couple yes, years ago. Yes,
0: I saw that in your blurbs.
2: Yeah, we uh, we roomed together, or rather, I should say, I slept in her unheated basement for two years. <laughs> uh, but she was generous <laughs> enough to let me crash there. But yeah, it's been a kind of straight shot of just an obsession, a dedication. I just, I love, if I could read and write all day and I didn't have to do anything else, I probably would.
0: I've basically made that my life. Yeah, time.
2: you really, yeah, exactly. I yeah. mean,
0: I, I, this, this, this dream can be yours. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. Well, I probably is yours because you, you keep you're coming out with these fabulous books and all of that. So, tell me more about your first book, and then just I, Ooh. I would just because now I'm. You've piqued my interest into your whole <laughs> oeuvre, if you will. And by the way, are you are you from Boston? Is that where the the context for Hope comes? Yes. Yeah. Yes.
2: So I'm from from Brookline, Massachusetts, same suburb where the where the yep. book is set. Very much a product of that town, in the same way the characters are as like this kind of liberal utopia that's also built on these weird contradictions about money and yep. and guilt and politics. But the first book, the first book, The Altruist, yep. it's much like this one in that it's a family of four grappling with similar sort of moral questions, but it's actually set largely in St. Louis, which is where I went to to college. And it's much, it's it's the premise is basically the mother of the family passes away and her husband in her sort of dying months, she realizes has been cheating on her. So she passes her inheritance uh, to her children, uh, bypassing him completely. But then she kind of leaves him in the lurch. And the book is basically about his attempt to win back his kid's love and inheritance, so he can pay off the mortgage on this home that they've that they he can no longer afford. So it's this kind of similar themes of family and money and humor, but a very different setting and a very much more about like this concept of goodness and like what does altruism mean? Are we acting out of selfish motivation? How, where do family and money come into play? So yeah, family's been a big theme for me, and that the one I'm, novel I'm working on now is really different in that it's a big sweeping historical epic of a book, but it's still about a family and it's still about a lot of these same issues. So I I kind of am discovering my own obsessions, I guess, as I go.
1: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me.
2: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today.
1: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials?
0: A month, which is so much less than traditional therapy. And you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from. So you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, dot com slash moms don't have time. Yeah. Okay. More information about the next book, please. <laughs>
2: Queer Jewish immigrant in 1911 shows up in Kansas City, starts a department store, raises the the son of a a sex worker friend who has no father, becomes this uh, retail dynasty in the Midwest. But it's sort of this like succession story of this like three generations rising and falling through the 20th century of the the history of Jews in retail, the history of American politics, and just like all the stuff that happens when you have blood family and adopted family and chosen family and mixed family and people showing up on ancestry.com you didn't know about and all that kind of stuff. That
0: sounds yeah. awesome. I had some grandfathers in retail. Jewish. Oh yeah,
2: of course. I mean, everybody yeah. is
0: everybody does. Not everybody, but you know what I mean? (laughs) Like digging myself in a hole here. Tell me a little more about what it's like, like with this new book you're writing and with Hope and everything. When you're writing, I'm assuming you're not, you're no longer having to hide this at, you know, a day job, I'm assuming. Tell me what your process is like and how much did you know going into it versus how much was in it? And like,
1: Mm.
0: were there any huge plot twists that you didn't see coming? And like, what was the whole experience like?
2: Yeah, well, I had been writing a different novel in grad school that just, sometimes you just know, like it's just not working. And it had been two years and I was having full-blown panic attacks. And then as soon as I had the thought, what if this isn't it? Suddenly I just like, my shoulders fell and I was like, okay, so now I have to basically grapple with, I'm free of this project, but what what do I do now? And in that project, there had been sort of this secondary set of characters, the Greenspans. And I was like, well, maybe... Maybe I sort of resurrect them and make them the center of the book. And it sort of grew from there. So in a sense, it was this very much like Phoenix rising from the ashes kind of kind of situation. But it was also the pandemic. It was like 2020, I'd gone back to my childhood home in Brookline, where I hadn't been in since I was 18. I was with my sister, who, who I hadn't also lived under a roof with since I was 18. And it was like this weird feeling of thinking, okay, I can't write about what's happening now because it's still happening every day. It's like, what is this pandemic? What's happening? But where were we like 10 years ago? I can't even imagine what that's like anymore. Like life is is so different. So many things have changed. I'm back at home and it grew up. I really kind of had to approach it like historical fiction, like do research into like, what was the Obama era? What was my childhood? Because all I'm thinking now is like, Trump, COVID, lockdown, quarantine, you know, and I kind of, it was a way to write myself out of the pandemic and also try to see like, okay, we were all very hopeful at that time. And now we're here in this kind of hopeless time. So how did we get here? What were the cracks in my, what were the blind spots and cracks in my ideology and my beliefs about America and about family that might've led us here? why did, basically, why didn't we see this coming? How, you know, where did this all come from? So it was really this process of, yeah, writing into very recent history, but treating it almost like I'm writing about the Middle Ages or it's like Wolf Hall or something, only it's my childhood from 10 years ago, you know? (laughs) But yeah, and uh, my process is really very business-like. It's like, up you know, 7 a.m., get to the desk around 8.30, Write and edit for as long as possible, and then feel guilty all day that I don't uh, that I'm not doing anything else. That's basically, and then get up and do it again the next morning.
0: Uh, Well, the way you write about guilt, also, (laughs) you know, this is a hallmark of of humor. Also, it's I mean, the intersection of guilt and lot essentially that's awesome wait so you have a sister is and are your parents married like give me your whole little let me yeah. uh, let me pry into your life here
2: sure um yeah my as as in the book my father's a cardiologist my mom actually just retired a week ago from uh being a seventh grade French teacher and I have a sister who actually fortunately lives down the street she was over here last night very close with her she works she uh started writing for TV just before actually the TV writer strike but she's super creative as well. And we, we like crack each other up. And like a lot of our humor comes from just being kids. We used to make comic books together and put on little plays and, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, very tight knit kind of creative family. And now we're just in our twenties and thirties trying to untangle ourselves from some of that stuff that was so wonderful at the time. And then we're like, how do I stop being my parents' child? Because I am 31 now, you know? So, uh, but we're all very close and they're still living in Brookline and uh, like I said, my sister's down the street. She's very close friends with my wife. So we have a good little, we had a good little COVID pot for sure. Wow. Well,
0: I mean, I'm 46 and I'm still trying to untangle <laughs> my complicated parent, parental relationships. I don't think it like ever ends. I think first you burst your bubble here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, more material for more books, I guess. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah.
0: Wow. It's a lifelong investigation. <laughs> 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 so what advice do you have for aspiring authors?
2: I remember when I was an aspiring author and I would go sometimes to readings or just anywhere I could be near a real like published author because there was this, you know, aura around them. And I remember like going to one at Brookline Booksmith where I'm going to be next week, which is this like beautiful full circle moment. But I went to her up to her and I didn't know her work or anything about her, but I was just like, how do I do this? How do I get where you are? And she was like, this is going to be, maybe sound disappointing, but like, there's no, there's no cheat code. There's no corner cutting. You just have to read and write. And I was deeply disappointed. (laughs) I was like, I already know that, but like, then what do you do? But really like when you're young, I mean, just reading everything you can possibly read and then finding out what your voice is by like, it's like throwing all your favorite authors in a blender and trying to be like, where what if this is me and what if this do I like leave aside? But I also think there's this sort of delusional perseverance that you need that like is kind of insane and and not recommended in other fields. Like I feel like <laughs> if you're trying to be a lawyer and you failed the bar like 35 times, someone in your family might be like, "Look, maybe maybe it's not for you if it's 35 times." But you need to fail like 350 times with rejections and so on with writing. So you almost also have to just be like, I like this enough to persevere through the doubt, through the rejection. Cause there really, I really do think like, if you read enough, write enough and keep going, like there there will be that pot of gold that might not look like a pot of gold or like be with the thing you expected, but you can get there. You just have to have like an extremely high tolerance for, for pain and, and a little bit of a delusional faith in yourself that like against all available evidence, maybe maybe you can do it, you know?
0: I love that so much. Delusional perseverance.
2: <laughs> hey, I, it's, not, it's not noble. I'm not like, I'm so- No, I, no, I'm no, noble, no. You know?
0: No, I know. Another author I was talking to recently was sort of like, you know it's being an author is such a mix of like insecurity and then like displaced complete like confidence like mm-hmm. my book should be a bestseller but wait maybe nobody's actually going to like it but it deserves to be on the bestseller list but wait maybe it's not you know like it's this sort of dichotomy <laughs> there's no middle.
2: there's no middle and and yeah even to write i mean i don't know how how you felt when you were writing your books plural but like you kind of need to believe you're a genius in the morning when you sit down to like, at least I need to feel like this is great. Like what I'm doing, this is, is really good. And then later I go, Oh, is that what I wrote this morning? Like that stinks. But in the moment, if I'm being too self-critical, I won't get it done. So it's almost like I have to summon a state of like insane ego Mm -hmm. and then later turn that off and be like, okay, what's, what did I really do? You know? Totally.
0: I know. And it's hard to explain, but I feel like you did it very well.
2: (laughs) Because I don't really understand.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's no, it's so bizarre. Even what you were saying earlier, like, yeah, that conversation with Leah, I had like six years ago, like as soon as you sit down, like all the stuff in the jumbled mess of your brain just like ekes out when you need it to and come and it's just like, you don't even know what, why the inputs get in there to begin with and like why you remember certain things and then why you pull them out. The brain is like bizarre, but I feel like. I don't know. Writing just, it's like examining human nature over and over again.
2: Yeah. I'm like, I'm the least like new agey woo-woo person ever. But as soon as I have to start explaining writing, I'm like, well, it's your subconscious talking and it's some um, of these forces you don't understand. I mean, I really do think there's something subrational that's happening. Yes. That, you know, we just don't really understand. And that's the magic of it, of course, too. Yes, totally. And then, of course, our poor families. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. They need a high tolerance for pain as well. Yeah.
0: But <laughs> it's fiction. Right, right, right. I know. I have this. I have, I've just been like rewriting. Well, I shouldn't be rewriting it because we're in copy <laughs> edits for my novel, but I'm like, oh, well, it's not, I haven't handed it in yet. So I'm just going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. And like this character I have of the mom, I'm like, this is getting a little bit close. Do you know what I mean? Like, I know she has two dogs in the book, one dog in real life. (laughs) I mean, like, this is, she's going to figure this out, you know. (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, I've, I've gone through a little, I've had some fallout before. Like, Mm -hmm. I've sort of been on that roller coaster, and it isn't pleasant. But I also think, to your point, it's like, when you're, you can't sit down and write with all these, you know, guardrails up, like, don't touch that. Don't touch, you know, you kind of just have to go. And then later, you know, maybe be like, oh, do I do I tweak that? Do I change the name? But I mean, as soon as you sit down to to write and you start telling yourself what's off limits, yes. I feel like it's a creative shutdown. Uh, I My dad, I texted my dad this quote the other day that I love. I think it's from Czeslaw Milos. And he goes, uh, you know, when a writer is born, the family is finished. <laughs> is like brutal, like Eastern European, like... Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, you raised the writer. You're you're gonna be in the book. Oh yeah. my
0: gosh. Are you going to LA at all on your tour? You should come to my bookstore.
2: Oh my God, I'd love to. Uh not at the moment, but I've I have friends in LA. I've actually never been to LA, period. So I would really love to. I'm oh taking I'm gonna take you up on this and you're gonna find me knocking at your bookstore. No, though.
0: no, I would love it. I feel like um, well, first of all, I would just love it, but um, you'll like it. And it's I'm fun. I'm coming now. I'm gonna be okay. There. okay. I'm gonna Please tell do. my dad. I'm, yeah. Please do. We'll set it up. Um, I just ordered, like, a huge stack of your books for the store. Oh, oh my God. Um, No, I'm
2: there. I'm just
0: done. Okay. Amazing. Well, congratulations. I will read everything you write from now on. I'm going to go back and read The altruist. I think, you, you know, and you're so young, too. I mean, I know that sounds not like I'm so much older, but, like, you have so much more writing in store. It's exciting. Like, it's wonderful to have, like, a new talent, you know. But, like, think about all the books you'll have written in the next Thirty years, you know. By the time you're, you know, it's just amazing. I can't wait to read them. So I,
2: I really appreciate that. Really means a lot. And and I love, I love watching like other writers or filmmakers like arcs. Like I love yeah. you know yeah. going on the Wikipedia and seeing yep. this whole yep. story. And yeah, all I've ever wanted in life is to to get to have a little you know arc like that. So I, I that means a lot, and I, and I really appreciate it.
0: No problem. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for coming on. And I wish you all the best for your thank lunch. You.
2: Oh, gosh. Yeah. Right okay. Right
0: okay. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also, sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music.
1: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim?